You're listening to Innovate Strathclyde, the University of Strathclyde's podcast on innovation and technology. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Innovate Strathclyde, hosted by me, Amanda Carpenter. And me, Chris White. Chris, so often when we talk about climate change and the need for the transition to net zero, it seems really distant and far away, doesn't it? I mean, a theory-based conversation about melting ice caps, bleached coral, shifts in migratory patterns of species, not part of our day-to-day lives. But I'm really excited about our conversation today because we are absolutely on home territory, not just talking about the direct impacts of climate change that we're witnessing here in the UK, you know, from extreme weather patterns, intense heats during July, the hottest month ever recorded on Earth, I think, flash flooding, etc. But but home territory for you too, because this is really your area of expertise and your discipline, isn't it? Yeah, that's right, Amanda. And uh, you know, all five of these episodes all cover different topics in and around climate and our drive to net zero. But you're right, this, this, the episode today is around extreme weather, the change of our climate and, and how that relates to the changes that we need to make about climate adaptation and, and building climate resilience. And that's very much my area. I, I look at, uh, in my research, I look at the impacts of extreme weather events. I look at droughts and floods, how they've happened in the past, how they're likely to change in the future, and then very much then uh, looking towards, I suppose, solutions for how we can improve our decision-making and build climate resilience. So today, yes, we're, we're on a topic that this is my particular area of, of, of interest and expertise, I suppose. And, and to put this episode really in context, you mentioned there about you know often the messaging around climate change is, is perhaps sometimes a bit detached from where we are. Uh, you mentioned about your know, changes perhaps to, to the environment or loss of permafrost or something like this. Whereas you know, perhaps you know, where we are here in the UK in in Scotland, the impacts a lot of the impacts that we are or, or will will continue to feel are around kind of the high impact weather, floods, droughts, um, and perhaps increasingly other events like heat waves or, or bushfires or wildfires. And the context behind that, as we're seeing at the moment, we've had a lot of record-breaking events. You mentioned a couple of statistics there. We've had a lot of record-breaking events, in, in it, even just within the last few months. Uh, and, the, and I say that globally. That's, that's UK. We've had uh, floods again in, in the UK. Parts of Scotland are currently in water deficit at the moment. But when you look at the bigger picture of mega droughts and heat waves and wildfires that are going on in the US and Canada, you look at fires going on in the subarctic, floods in China and so on. It's a somewhat depressing I suppose, statistic or, or measure of, of where we are as in where our climate is. And really, that's the backdrop to a lot of what, what we're going to be hopefully discussing today. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important that we put it in that context, because so often climate change, as I said, feels like a far distant thing, but it also feels like something that perhaps people don't have a sense of immediacy about, you know, and, and, and I know we've often in these conversations sort of related it back to our experience of the pandemic. But I guess the pandemic where people were dying in front of our very eyes, weren't they, sadly, and we were losing people that we knew and loved. Climate change will have that effect ultimately, but it isn't as immediate very often for us. So so having that sense that this is something that's actually affecting our immediate environment, you know, whether it's droughts or floods, is I think brings it all into sharp relief. But 
we, we're not just going to be doing the gloomy stuff, are we? We're also going to be talking about uh, adaption and resilience. And we've got two terrific guests um, joining us today to help us in that conversation. And, and I'm delighted to welcome Kit England, who's Green Economy Manager at Glasgow City Council. Kit, hello, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thank you. Lovely to be with you. And uh, Catherine Pierce, who's Innovation Manager at Sniffer. And I have to say, Sniffer is the best named organisation we've ever had on the podcast. Catherine, hello, welcome. Just tell us what Sniffer is for those who are not yet initiated in the Sniffer culture. Hi, great to be here. And thanks for the great introduction. So Sniffer, we're a sustainability charity based in Scotland. And our work really focuses on broadening climate resilience and really looking to that sort of sense of opportunity to ensure that we create a flourishing and fairer future for all in a changing climate. So really great to be here. Thank you. Thanks, Catherine. And that's quite a positive and optimistic note as well. And I'm glad we've brought that into the conversation so early on. But Chris, we should row back a bit, shouldn't we? Because we need to talk about the report that's just come out from the IPCC and the famous code red warning. What does that mean in terms of the work that you're doing, but also what is it that that report is telling us for those listeners who don't know it as well? It's no um, exaggeration, I think, when I say that the IPCC's report, so that's the Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change, um, that's the sixth assessment report. It's it's no unsaid to say that it's a landmark publication. It is the sixth one, as in they've done five previously. And for those of you that might not know, the the IPCC is an intergovernment body. It's represented by 195 of the world's countries. And every five to seven years or so, um, climate scientists, and when I say climate scientists, hundreds of them, a couple of hundred climate scientists, um, and contributing other contributing authors review the latest science that comes that has been published in the five years, and it, and and when I say climate science, that's both the observations, um, so concentrations of CO two in the atmosphere through to impacts, as well as looking at publications that are talking about how the climate uh, is likely to change in the future. And so that's based, of course, a lot of that on models and the output of models. And just for clarity, the IPCC don't do the science; they report, synthesize, summarize the science and make it, I suppose, legible, understandable for the vast majority uh, of us to then be able to make decisions on. And that's, of course, where the adaptation and the resilience part really, really starts uh, starts to come in. So the, the sixth assessment report, or in fact, more specifically, it's the working group one, the science uh, report part of it. There are two more still, still to come. This is the first one. That code red part, which you mentioned just just there, that was from the uh, Secretary General, that said, "Yeah, our, our climate is this is code red for our for our climate." Um, I think the words were irrefutable evidence of human influence on our climate, and the wording that the IPCC used. Now, I've been familiar, as probably all of us on this podcast are, we've been familiar with these reports for years. Yeah, they are the basis of of a lot of the work that any of us in this space do. The wording is so strong and, and the messaging so stark in this report that it quite rightly, uh, you know, to bring back to that landmark uh, report, that's the space that it occupies. And I think there was many high key messages that came from that. But for me, I think the, the, the key ones were that statement around climate change is unequivocal. They used a bit of that terminology seven years ago. It's really hammered home this time. And, and then when you look to the future climate, as in how our climate is likely to, to change in the climate space, we talk about one and a half, two degrees as realistic futures or um, somewhere we'd like to try and keep 
the climate too. I think the wording in, in this one, in, in this IPCC sixth assessment report, basically says that we've got a tough job on our hands if we're going to stop the climate exceeding those thresholds. In other words, we've pretty much locked in 1.5 or 2 degrees, no matter what we do. And again, I know I'm sounding quite depressing when I, when I say this thing, so I'm the negative side, and hopefully Catherine and Kit will, will be able to deliver the more positive side in a minute. But but that's the key messaging, really, that, that's coming out of it. But there are some real positives, as in, you know, it does lay the groundwork then for the regional adaptation, the risk assessment work that needs to come. And of course, it very much then provides the backdrop uh, for how we need to limit the future change to our climate. And of course, I'm looking forward there to COP26. And I'm sure Kirsten and Catherine will have something quite um, specific to talk about on, on those two points. And at 1.5 to 2 degrees, some climatic change is irreversible now, isn't it? So some of the things that have happened as we're on that trajectory can no longer be restored. So some of the widespread damage to the planet is now set. There's nothing we can do, even if we manage to keep below two degrees. Is that right? I, I, I think that, that that's pretty much the messaging that's come out in this. And there have been, a, in the UK context, a couple of other quite key reports. And even in the last few months, the, the Climate Change Committee's, uh, they call it the CCRA3, so that's the Independent Government Advice on uh, Climate Risk. They talk about these one and a half, two degree levels or thresholds being baked in or already set, as in, you know, that's what we are looking that we have to uh, live with as a future. And so to limit uh, the, the impacts beyond that is really now the, the place where we need to be placing our efforts. So um, yes, there are still scenarios that say we could not, you know, we could keep it down below two degrees, but I think that would require basically every country in the world pretty much stopping emitting today. And of course, there's a huge dose of reality attached to this. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose we always have to say, will anyone take any notice? <laughs> will governments respond? Will the government rise to the challenge? And Kit, you're sitting in a, in a local authority, you know, Glasgow City Council. How do reports of this kind go down and what sort of actions and, com and conversations do they promote amongst your colleagues? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, I mean, just picking up on on Chris's point just for a second about the kind of science. In one sense, the science is clearer, and the messaging in this is is clearer. I think you know that's what surprised me about the sixth set, or not surprised me, I suppose. But you know, that's what was good about the sort of the the working group one report is that actually it's very very robust and clear around its messaging. And actually, in, in a lot of ways, that gives me some cause for optimism, right? Because the theory is now is now nailed down, which is that, you know, greenhouse gas emissions, carbon dioxide, methane, et cetera, it's very clear that they have a, you know, a warming effect on the climate. And then the theory, obviously, is that if we stop that, therefore, we can avoid the worst impact of, of climate change. So I think kind of weirdly, it's quite hopeful in, in the sense that the science is much more robust around around the impacts of climate change and, and, and the fact that we're changing the climate because it means that we can act, you know, there's much less kind of ambiguity or, or kind of cause for that. I mean, in terms of uh, what that means, we'll, we'll perhaps unpack that a little bit in, uh, in due course about what it means for local authorities and for cities and, and for places. But, you know, I think it's, it's had a really sobering and galvanizing effect. You know, as, as the city that's hosting COP, you know, in, in the run up, you know, we know that we have to play our part, but it just redoubles our ambition and our efforts, I think. 
you know, um, there are lots of challenges on the way there, but actually what it's doing is, is kind of mobilizing that ambition. And I think it's, it's important to put it in context, right, which is that cities and regions haven't had to face this kind of challenge for the best part of a hundred years, actually. If you you know, if you think about the last time that cities and regions did very big things, it was things like, you know, building the drainage infrastructure to deal with cholera outbreaks, or actually building the electricity networks that connected, you know, power stations to homes. We probably made a lot of the problem in the first place, you know. Um, but but that space is quite is quite different for local authorities and for cities and regions to get into. And I think where we're starting to get into is the incremental change is not enough. And actually what we need to do is some quite fundamental reimagining of places and, and structures and institutions to get us to where we need to be. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think that that makes it sound like a huge challenge though, Kit, and I'm sure it is. And, and I'm sure Glasgow is more than capable of stepping up to that challenge. But but that's an enormous amount to take on. And, and I think that I wonder if we might just probe perhaps a little bit of some of the steps that get there. We've been talked, you mentioned, Chris, I think adaptation and resilience and, and mitigation. And I think they're possibly terms that people who are not familiar with climate science might not always understand the full implication of that. I mean, what, what's the essential difference between climate resilience and adaptation, for example, Catherine? I mean, what, what should we be beginning to get our heads around when we think about this in the broader sense? Yeah, it's an interesting point, really, because we've often talked about adaptation um, in, a, in a kind of silo, really. Often, I think this is one of the key messages that came out for me from the SIP assessment report was that now we have to do both together. Now we have to focus our efforts on net zero and really reducing our emissions alongside dealing with the impacts. And when often when we when we think about adaptation, it's very much in sort of narrow framing, a kind of quite a narrow context of, I don't know, building sort of flood defences, flood walls, just to sort of respond directly to a particular impact. Whereas for me, climate resilience is actually more in tune with what we need to do, really much more in tune with the agenda we're looking at, to really look at the sort of broader sense of how we deal with those impacts and how we align some of our measures, align some of our activities, that we look at the sort of broader sense of general sort of well-being for people, that we bring people along with us rather than having activities and measures sort of done to them. This is about building sort of resilience across our societies and looking at the sort of inequalities that come with our, our rising climate impacts, you know, whether that be through sort of impacts on our health and, you know, exacerbating certain inequalities, whether that is about sort of those resilient measures that really help to sustain and, and bring out and broaden our, our general well-being. And what we mean by that, our greater sort of understanding of, of what we mean by our sort of resilience and, and well-being. I think what we're looking to here with resilience is trying to take adaptation out of its silo framing, because I don't think it has really, it's not generating the types of conversations and not generating the right types of responses that we need. Whereas you look at sort of climate resilience, you're looking at the more of the kind of the broader system around us, how we engage with that system, what's working for us, where are the levers of change? And that is likely to bring longer lasting benefits for all of us that, that brings, you know, greater sort of multiple benefits alongside of those efforts. And that, I think that rings true for what people want to hear as well. Um, so that's, that's where I think that agenda is taking us and that sort of resilience also brings into, into step and into play the nature of how we reduce emissions alongside. I think I would agree with what what Catherine said there. I think we just need to take 
I suppose it's important to acknowledge um, the starting point for a lot of action on this in this space in that, you know, the climate crisis is nested within some other crises as well. Some health, you know, we have a health crisis, we have an inequality crisis, we have a nature crisis, and all of those are happening simultaneously and are inextricably linked. So it's very, very difficult to sort of say, you know, actually, we just need to deal with, with net zero or we just need to deal with, with, with adaptation now. You know, uh, if you want to go very narrowly to the, what the IPCC say, they say that adaptation is the process of change and resilience is the outcome. But, you know, it's, it's, I don't think it's important to get too hung up on that, really. But I think Catherine's absolutely right. The time for doing adaptation or mitigation is, is over and we have to do both at the same time now. I think that's such an interesting point because very often, I suppose, you know, those of us who are not actually in the full-time business, so therefore not running a a local authority or not running an organisation like yours, Catherine, kind of assume that someone else is going to take care of a bit of the adaptation. So, you know, whether it's building flood defences or or ensuring that we have, you know, enough renewable energy supply, that it's sort of something we can't get our heads around and we can't deal with directly as individuals. But, but with your definition and your thinking, this is very much about putting both responsibility, but also the, the the levers for change, if you like, the actions within the local community's control. So we all as citizens can do something to increase climate resilience and, and in a way to, to take responsibility for adaptation as well. Yeah, that's completely right. And that's why Sniffer, a lot of our work focuses around place-based partnerships, place-based work, because when you think about sort of climate impacts, you very much go down to the local level or the regional level very, very quickly because the impacts are very different. The responses are very different and they need sort of local, they require kind of local solutions that are appropriate to that sort of locality. Um, And by doing so, you're also bringing in and understanding the true sort of lived experience and, you know, lived sort of knowledge of how people are dealing with those types of impacts. I think when it comes to um, sort of net zero reducing emissions, we've seen um, how people are responding to that concern and they genuinely are very concerned. They want to do something about it. They see that their governments are not working as far as fast or as urgent as they need to be. But you look at the sort of the uptake and the huge market growth in EVs now. So, you know, so people are, you know, are really sort of voting with their with their purse, really, if you like. And that, that's, a, that's a market that has completely flourished because due to sort of direct consumer influence and direct sort of feeling that people want to make a difference. It's not so easy when you think about climate resilience and dealing with impact. There's not a market at this point in time. There's not an adaptation economy to buy into. There's not necessarily the sort of products and services that people can, can, can engage with as consumers or as citizens. And so this is about looking to see what that experience is for people on the ground. Um, you know, how do they feel that there are changes in their local environment, in their neighbourhoods? And how are they concerned in, in, in order to act? And in, in many cases, you know, Kit's mentioning the sort of the, the number of different crises that we have around us at the moment. You know, we've talked about inequalities, but also the rela- relation to COVID as well. We've seen how some people living in their communities, they didn't see local authorities or local services coming to their need, and they took matters into their own hands. And so Sniffer, what we're trying to do is, is work with those local communities, work with businesses and organisations that are providing those services to really to match up and, and carry through some of those solutions. And by 
by working with local communities, by working with individuals and businesses and organizations that create that sort of nature of co-design through those solutions, you're more likely to find solutions, certainly that directly respond to people's needs and urgency, but are more likely to be longer lasting because they feel there's a sense of ownership and buy-in. You know, it's about those decisions that are created together through, you know, through, through that process of conversation and investigation and inquiry that so we generally understand people's concerns and needs and, and are able to respond to them. And as I say, those solutions are likely to be more effective and longer lasting. Just to sort of carry on, I, I guess, at that point, we started this, this episode very much from the global perspective, the IPCC's report. And of course, the place where Sniffer works, and we were just describing there, Catherine, is very much at the local scale. And are you finding that there's still a disconnect between that global messaging that says, well, a lot of things we've just been talking about, that code red for climate uh, and uh, the need for global change versus very much what you're describing there, which is action at the local level. Is there still a disconnect or are you finding that the people that you're working with are becoming more attuned to that big messaging, perhaps aided, dare I say, by the likes of of recent events like COVID, which are is a global problem, but having to be addressed at the local level. Are you finding that that messaging and that action is actually changing at the local level? Yeah, Chris, I would say so. I think people are definitely becoming um, more attuned, um, more informed, more concerned, really. Um, you know, that was the thing for, for the SIP assessment report. The first edition came out last couple of weeks ago was that we're seeing climate change play out now in real time. And so, um, you know, those headlines within the assessment report, you see them, you know, you, you were seeing them on the news, you know, with the, the sort of um, the record breaking kind of heat waves and flooding, you know, in, in all corners of the globe. And I think people are increasingly they're seeing their, their, their local impacts, their local environment change. And they are genuinely quite concerned about what can be done here. And they also have a a sense of ownership too. I mean, those people who are um, who experience flooding in their own homes, you know, their own their own belongings completely destroyed. There's a there's a, a there's a mental impact there in terms of you know how people feel about those consequences to the point that you know residents fear you know massive rain showers because they know it's going to be happening again. So how can they be responding to that, and how do they? You know, where they feel that local services may be, there is a bit of a disconnect that those local services, certainly a sense that the national government is not working as fast as it should be. Um, and so that sense of engagement, I think, which certainly we're seeing in Sniffer is really coming out in, in very strong terms. And what we've always tried to do is some of this is very daunting, very scary, you know, particularly some of those messages. And what we try to do is sort of turn that on its head and to be seeking out where the opportunities are, where the sort of positive messages, not only for sort of engagement and to be working with um, communities, but also to so that they feel that they have the opportunity to flourish, to thrive, so that we see that opportunity to, to, to help them to sort of live the lives and um, that they want to. Yes, the impacts are going to be there, unfortunately. We see, we're seeing that play out. 
but certainly we can build their resilience to hope to cope with those sort of impacts going forward. We definitely need to get that level of community engagement to build that resilience, but we can't leave it all to, to citizens on the ground, can we, and to organisations like yours? I mean, there's a huge responsibility and burden of activity, I guess, sitting on local authorities and on city councils, isn't there? And, and I'm sure, you know, you're doing things in Glasgow to support organisations like Sniffer, but also to do far more to going back to your point about needing to structure infrastructure and change. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I'll talk about that in a, in a sec. I mean, you know, just redoubling and, and, and kind of adding to what Catherine said, you know, the polling data on action on climate change, people want action. You know, and you see it in polling data all over the place, whether it's, you know, there was a recent survey for the Global Commons Alliance that was done by Ipsos that said 73 percent of people want across the G20 want governments to prioritize ecological restoration and regeneration over narrow GDP and profit, for example. Or, you know, the Scottish Household Survey, you know, or, or in fact, the European Investment Bank did a recent survey of 13,500 firms across Europe, you know, all of which were saying, well, we're starting to make investments in climate, you know, in climate resilience as well. So there is a lot of appetite for action. And I think the the points that, that Chris and Catherine were making around kind of adaptation needing to be sort of, you know, led by communities and involved by communities, uh, you know, and therefore connecting more with people, especially when you talk about impacts. I think that's fair because I think so far net zero has been seen as this technological change or there's a, there's a market over here for EVs and there's a market for, for green tariffs, et cetera. Where I think it's, it's slightly different and where I think it has to be a partnership between citizens and government is around, I suppose, the, the next stage of net zero and adaptation together. Right, which is much, much bigger and much more fundamental. What we've done so far has been the incremental sort of change and the low, the low hanging fruit, if you like. But actually, the two for Glasgow, for example, the biggest kind of chunks of emissions come from buildings and from transport. And actually, you know, uh, uh, only up to a point do people have levers around those things. And after that, it's very, very hard for as an individual citizen to retrofit your house to being net zero or to redesign your transport choices you're limited by what the infrastructure is around so so absolutely it sort of needs to be a partnership now between citizens and governments together with citizens kind of shaping the direction and moving you know and businesses also being part of that conversation about where do we need to go to give governments the mandate but also governments doing what they haven't done for a long time which is throw the proverbial kitchen sink at, at climate action now and you know i'm sort of pleased to sort of say that in glasgow we're starting to think in, in those terms so some of the early activities that we've got underway we published the newest round of our climate plan um last month the climate action plan for 2030 we've committed to being net zero as a city by 2030 and now what we've done is we've just launched a 30 billion pound investment prospectus seeking private investment and starting to facilitate some of that investment into into net zero and adaptation so it's not about government doing everything but actually it's about facilitating and guiding the direction of that economy there but at the same time we are also planning some really big infrastructure projects we're looking at at those harder to treat kind of issues of emissions and resilience building so housing retrofit around looking at the potential for a new metro system that's resilient to the impacts of climate change about redesigning our economic strategy those kinds of things as well the but what we're really clear about is that those things have to be done in conjunction with you know in consultation, in discussion, in design with citizens. You know, it needs that participation, not only because they're so big that actually you need a a democratic mandate, but actually they'll be better designed, they'll be better taken up, they'll be better delivered if they're done in, you know, and designed with citizens and with business as well. 
You're listening to Innovate Strathclyde, the University of Strathclyde's podcast on innovation and technology. Just to carry on, I guess, some of the points you were just saying there, I think a lot of what you're saying, and actually, Catherine, just, just before you, was around the in, that need for a, a reduction in siloed thinking uh, and interconnectedness between our drive for net zero, a need for adaptation and resilience, as well as more equitable society and so on. Are we at the stage yet where we can realistically put all of those big picture pieces together and try and tackle them together? I would say it's about all of us, isn't it? I mean, this is one of the key points around not only adaptation, but climate resilience is this is about all of us. We need to collaborate like never before. So we all have a part to play, you know, and that's one area that Sniffer also works on is, you know, really building and helping organizations and businesses to sort of understand and anticipate and transform in the face of climate change, both for their own internal ways of working and their organizational culture, but also in terms of the sort of the services they provide. So, for example, you know, we work, Sniffer works very closely with Glasgow City Council, you know, and we have a, an adaptation climate framework, capability framework that we have worked with a number of public sector organizations to help them sort of that, that sort of internal transformation that's required to help them sort of build their capability around climate resilience so that they, you know, across the piece, across all, all employees, across the whole organization in terms of um, its delivery model, so that it is able to not only sort of for itself have that kind of climate resilience, but in terms of the services that it provides, that it has that transformation and it has that resilience. And we've done a great deal of work with organizations across the public sector to help build that understanding and capability. Um, but it is about all of us. And I think this is the, you know, this is the really exciting part of this is that we can no longer work in silos. This is about, you know, particularly as Kit has mentioned, incremental adaptation has been good up to a, a, a moment. But right now we need to scale up our action. We need to scale up our urgency here to take it to that transformational adaptation and actually, this is also when you think about the scale of the approach and the scale of the response, by looking at transformational adaptation, you're more likely to also bring in and, and stimulate private sector investment into this work. Private sector finance and investment has, you know, historically been so difficult to channel into adaptation measures for, you know, for obvious reasons. One, that it's not revenue generating. You know, this is about the sort of greater public common good of, of when we talk about climate resilience and adaptation. If you talk about sort of the, the transformational nature of some of these big projects that cut across different sectors, different organizations, then you're more likely to have that interest from private sector finance, particularly if you bring in net zero work as well, because you're going to begin to look at where the, you know, where the revenue can be generated from. And that sort of scale is exactly where the private sector is interested. And we've not been able to crack that up till now. It's really interesting. I would completely agree with Catherine. I mean, is it realistic? Well, I, I suppose my challenge back is what's the alternative? So that's the first thing is what's the alternative to not acting right now? We either humans are, are not actually bad at doing long term thinking, but we tend to leave it till quite late. 
And actually what we're trying to talk about here is we need something equivalent to the man on the moon type moment or a Bretton Woods system or the NHS. You know, the, the scale of transformation that's needed is is of that order really now. But what's the alternative? And, and, and actually what that means is thinking very differently about the skills and capabilities and structures that are needed to deliver it. Because I think we've sort of this current structures that we have, whether it's local authorities or universities or NGOs, you know, the governance and the structures around that were set up for dealing with incremental change or to deal with, you know, processes that are good for repeating and need to be improved. And, instead, you know, if you look at, for example, the way that the moon landings program was organized by NASA, it was structured really, really differently with the contracts being really structured differently. The relationship with the businesses and the engineers that were put together being really differently. And we need to start to think like that. It's quite interesting if you take a um, this is my favorite example of the moment. And so I'm sorry if Catherine, Chris, you've heard this story before, but um, it, it, it's around when the at the time of the financial crisis in the US in 2008, the US government started giving out loans to to green companies that potentially held the held the potential to, to be new industries for America. And they gave a 500 million pound loan to two companies. One was Tesla and one was a, another electric vehicle firm called Solyndra. And actually, Solyndra didn't manage to, to, to succeed. They went bust and they and they, you know, the US government was out of pocket, 500 million. Tesla did well and actually repaid that loan on, on time and went on to be valued as one of the world's biggest companies. If the US government had taken the same amount of money as an equity stake in that business rather than a loan, the amount of money repaid to the US government would be three and a half billion dollars. So we really need to start thinking quite differently about how value is created in our economy, because that three and a half billion could have been spent on adaptation, for example. You know, but those you kinds just... of structures and those statements are really important for us to think about going forward. But Kit, you just encapsulated that. The problem we've got is we've got none of that thinking at, at government level, have we? We've got an administration, I mean, UK administration I'm talking about here widely, which says, yes, we're committed to climate change adaptation and we want to develop the green economy and build back better at war with a treasury that's saying it's all too expensive, we can't possibly commit this money. And in the middle, we've got the private sector saying we can see the opportunity, but you've got to make it worth our while. So, so how do we reconcile those really big tensions at the macro level before we can start delivering on what Sniffer's agenda is so vitally important at the micro level? I mean, we cannot do the one without the other. I would slightly disagree because I would say the UK government is going through an adjustment period of leaving the European Union and dealing with COVID and all those other things. But actually, the UK sits between on the, you know, westward, we've got the US, which is just published in the process of agreeing a $3.2 trillion infrastructure plan around a Green New Deal. And then to the east, we've got the European Union, which has also just agreed a European Green Deal. And those two forces are much more powerful economically than the UK, and they have the power to shape markets. And then I think there are you've got to pair that. So those kind of two deals are going to really reshape the global landscape on economics and finance. And then at the same time, there are lots of things that we can do at a, sort of a, a national or a local level to, to pull levers on that space as well. So a really good example, actually very current, is the shared policy program that was published this weekend by the SNP and the Greens as part of the coalition agreement. And in there, there's an agreement to, for example, require all businesses to disclose their transition and physical risks of climate change and attach conditions to the public sector grants. So going forward, it's very likely you won't be able to get support from the Scottish government to develop your business or to, to move forward. 
forward without actually having to commit to net zero, without having to commit to adapt to climate change and start to put those processes in place. So I sort of agree with you. It's very difficult that we've got the Treasury and the UK government, you know, at, at odds with, I suppose, the direction we need to go in. But I'm not too worried because I think we've also got some bigger economic players at, at large that are setting us in the right direction too. There's so many threads to what we're discussing here. We, we could we could probably have a whole spin-off series just on this one point alone. I think the, the, there's some common sort of threads running through even just just our, our conversation just here. And to me, one of them is actually is the speed of change. And without again wishing to sound too optimistic that Kit was was daring to be uh, earlier on, things do change quickly in this, I suppose, discipline or this the, this field. Uh, yeah, this is. The third IPCC report that that has come out within my working time of uh, within working in this field, and yeah, the messaging is clearer and it's stronger, and and the the uh, uh, I suppose what it's saying is also probably worse, but also the connection between a lot of the things that are, are being talked about often in silos, whether it's the climate, the pure climate science, whether it's adaptation, whether it's mitigation, uh, are all. In a lot to a large way being blended together far more than they ever have done it in the past. And to bring home that sort of speed part, again, perhaps there are some benefits, dare I say it, to the fact that we are still going through COVID. Um, and and it does sometimes take adversity, it does take a bad or a series of bad events like the, the globe, some of the, the extreme events we're seeing globally at the moment or have been happening this summer to really bring to home that global to local sort of argument again to really bring that home and and therefore the speed of change it 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 does seem to be changing not not week to week but but things are changing in, in a very quick succession of time i mean i would agree chris the other thing i would say is the analysis is getting a hell of a lot better very very quickly as well so you know, for one of the things that was absolutely great that Sniffer did as part of Climate Ready Clyde was being able to say, well, look, here is the economic impact of climate change on our on our regional economy. And that's a very powerful message, for example, to be able to say to, to leaders and politicians, well, look, you know, this is this is the status quo. You know, are you comfortable with that as, as something that you're putting in front of your citizens, you know, are you, for, for future change? So I think there's, you know, there are the speed at which I suppose the messaging and the analysis is starting to cut through is really changing too. I would agree with that. And I, I would also say that, you know, there's a number of growing movements as well that governments can no longer afford to deny. You know, the, the youth climate movement around the world has really opened things up here. But I would I would also just remind us that that the IPCC and and you know I give enormous thanks to all those scientists around the world who basically gave up their time for free to do this extensive amount of work. This has been agreed by governments too. You know they have nowhere to hide now in terms of recognizing that urgency and scale. And as I say, this is these impacts are playing out in real time. And I think you know as people are increasingly being affected by climate impacts and equally as businesses too, governments really have nowhere to hide in terms of really responding certainly to the call for action, but also recognizing the significant threat here. And it's, it's not just about sort of throwing money at the problem, although certainly money is a significant challenge here, you know, and it is about looking to not only sort of being more strategic about public funds, but also sort of really working with private sector, new types of, of finance. But it's 
it's that sort of social innovation too, really, that, that, that doesn't just look at the sort of built infrastructure, but really looks at that social innovation and goes back to Chris's point about, you know, who's it up to? It's up to all of us. And it's up to that sort of sense of social innovation that we're working together, understanding, you know, our place in the system, really. You know, this is some of the work that, that, that um, Climate Ready Clyde did so well in developing the Adaptation Strategy and Action Plan for Glasgow City Region. It really looks at that sort of systems change the nature of inclusivity and collaboration, and also that the, the sense of new governance arrangements really are gonna be required in terms of looking at how decisions are being made here and how climate risk is being introduced into some of those decisions too. Yeah, we're really looking Absolutely. at transformation across the board, aren't we, in all of our systems and, and all of our, our structures but at all levels, you know, national, local, you know, regional, city council level, all across. A fascinating discussion. We should probably try to bring it to a close, but Kit, I know you wanted to come in and I, and I really wanted just, if I very quickly could, just ask Catherine a little bit about that issue about social transition, because you said it isn't all about money and you talked about private sector finance, but but quite a lot of what we're asking of our citizens are things that we're asking individuals to do. And, and as we ask individuals to do very often around climate action, there is a high cost, you know, whether it's an EV car or air source heat pump. So, so, so how are we going to, to square the circle on the fact that there is a lot of social injustice built into the transition itself? That's the million dollar question, isn't it, really? I don't know. I mean, with the work that Sniffer we do at the moment is both focusing on, on place-based action, place-based partnerships, you know, looking to see who is active in that place, who's active in that community, the sort of, you know, the work they do, how local communities and people are feeling sort of impacted, both currently and in, you know, and, and potentially in the future, how those sort of scenarios play out for them, but also equally working with public sector organizations to to help those organizations sort of build that capacity and and build that direct sort of support to ensure those place-based projects and and areas really have that sort of sense of greater sort of resilience going forward and and so that really comes down to a very complicated and complex nature of the different conversations to be had and and you know as I was saying there's sort of there's many levers of change there there's many power dynamics here and it isn't just about money but it's also about the types of conversations that we have and going back to that question about is it adaptation or is it climate resilience adaptation often doesn't mean anything to anybody on the ground you know and so it's having those conversations about you know their lived experience and and what's happening to them and, and actually what's what's important to them what are their priorities for improving their sort of local neighborhood and that could be about increased access to open green space and so looking at um, investments into natural cooling and shading whether you know that's whether that's how how and where sort of trees are planted and looked after but also the connection that's that, that local residents and people have to some of these projects so that they have a sort of a sense of sense of ownership and some of the work that we did last year with Clyde Rebuilt um, together with Creative Carbon Scotland was and Creative Carbon Scotland you know that expertise on sort of um, understanding creative arts and sustainability and the nature of sort of cultural engagement mm. to open out those types of conversations and get a sense of how people connect 
to this issue? What motivates them? What draws them into this type of conversation? And it's, and it's through that type of looking at it from a systems perspective that those sort of local services, local authorities are able to then sort of provide and, and respond, I think, better to where, where, the, you know, where the community needs are. And it's from that and you can scale up. You know, every place is unique, but there are some connections there. So, and that, I think, is where certainly for the Scottish government too, to be able to respond to that understanding of the lived experience and what's working and what's not. And then that brings in the whole sort of social innovation too. So it's, it's also policy innovation, I would say too. We need to really be trying out new things. We, you know, we have to innovate like never before because the urgency is too great. Yeah, we're fast running out of time, both for the planet and sadly for this podcast. Kit, I'm going to give the final word to you. Well, I'll try and try and sum up. I mean, I think what I'm getting from listening to Catherine is, you know, there's a moral obligation on all of us to make sure that that fairness and that equity happens as part of that transition. But that moral obligation isn't enough, right? It needs to be backed by, you know, a systemic change, which is underpinned by laws, regulations, you know, for those institutions to make it happen. And those laws and regulations, you know, making them is a messy process. You know, we, it's not a case that, you know, we just demand that the Scottish Parliament does the right thing in it, or the UK government does the right thing and it just happens, right? It comes from community action, from pressure, et cetera, to, to, to make that happen. And I think that that's the nature, that's the beauty of the IPCC report to try and bring us back round to, to where we started, is that it's not just a tool for policymakers, it's a tool for activists, it's a tool for those going to court to change, to challenge governments, it's a tool for, for people to get into the boardroom and challenge the trajectories that businesses are on. And so from my perspective as a sort of city policymaker, there's an obligation on me to take the IPCC report and think about that moral obligation and factor it into the way that we design and deliver projects and programs. So just to try and make that real, we are in the process of consulting around building a new metro system. Actually, where that goes, the communities that it connects and the economic opportunities it opens up, you know, those are very, very valid questions when we're thinking about that just transition. Who has access to those opportunities? You know, will that actually, you know, narrow inequality or will it make it worse? Will it deal with carbon emissions for those communities that, you know, who are locked into those high carbon trajectories by the fact that they can't afford to get out of them? Those kinds of questions. So I hope that's a nice sort of way to, to bring us full circle to where we started as a, as a way of finishing that off. hope that's a useful reflection. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you. Chris, what a fascinating discussion. What, what wasn't it? I, I felt like we're, we're only just really sort of warming up and, and, <laughs> and we're, we're having to, to wrap it up. No, it, it's been a brilliant uh, discussion and, and, and maybe just, just maybe that the year's delay uh, for COP26 in now, now we're a year on or will be a year on. Maybe it's not such a bad thing because an awful lot has happened in, in the last year, not least the release of the IPCC report, which is kind of the, the backdrop, I suppose, to a lot of our discussion here today. So maybe, again, I'm, I'm trying to turn my slightly negative start to, to a real positive end. Thank you very much and to both of our guests, to Catherine Pierce from Sniffer, uh, for Kit England uh, from Glasgow City Council. Thank you both very much for, for coming. It's been a brilliant discussion today. Thank you. Chris. We are, of course, recording a, a series of these podcasts. This is just one. You've been listening today to Innovate Strathclyde, the podcast from the University of Strathclyde. Uh, why not subscribe to us on Spotify or iTunes uh, or your favorite podcast app to make sure you don't miss 
this or any other course, uh, future episodes, or you can visit us on the University of Strathclyde website. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Thanks. Goodbye. Goodbye.